0: Before introducing today's guest, I want to remind listeners you have a few more days to vote on your favorite episodes of 2017. Voting will close January 31st, so please go to econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to the survey there. Today is January 11th, 2018, and my guest is Marion Goodell. She is founding board member and CEO of the Burning Man Project. Marion, welcome to EconTalk. Thank Thank you. Uh, What is Burning Man? It's an incredible phenomenon, uh, but a number of people, I suspect in my listenership, have never heard of it. have no idea what it is.
1: Burning Man is uh, usually known most quickly and easily uh, by people as a large event in the Nevada desert that has over 75,000 people attending. They're there for eight days, the last week of August, and it's just north of Reno, Nevada. And we're particularly well known because we're not like any festival. We don't usually call ourselves a festival. We sort of call ourselves a gathering, but mostly we're a city. So we don't have any name music bands, and we don't sell the normal food and t shirts. We only sell coffee and ice.
0: And somehow, an impromptu city is going to spring up in the middle of the desert for eight days for 74,000 people to take care of themselves and survive. And as an economist, I'm interested in that. We're going to talk along the way about how that emerges and to what role your organization as the umbrella over this, uh, what role they play. But of course, Burning Man, which I think started in 1986 um, with a bunch of people sitting on a beach in San Francisco burning a piece of sculpture, uh, it's changed a lot. And some of it, I assume, is under control and some of it's under no one's control. So talk about what. What literally happens, it's hard to understand unless you've looked at some of the pictures, and it's easy to find extraordinary photographs on the web of of the phenomenon. But this is – there's no infrastructure there. This is just a desert spot, and at the end of the eight days, it's a desert spot again. Uh, So how – what happens – How did we get there? Yeah, (laughs) give me your impressions. Of course, you're you're the CEO, but you're also – you've been a longtime attendee. Yes, I've
1: been part of it for 22 years. Yeah, so –
0: and do you go over here now, by the way? I do. Okay. I, I don't really have a choice at the time. <laughs> so if I were to attend, uh, let's say i buy my, it's 300 and, is it, how much is it these days?
1: Well, to, the ticket uh, prices, there's a, they range. The most expensive ticket price is $1,200 and that's uh, basically uh, supplementing uh, the low income and art. And the lowest income price ticket that you apply for is $190, but our average uh, ticket price is $425. Okay,
0: so for, for $425, I get the opportunity to buy ice and and coffee from you. Yep,
1: yep <laughs> you what, what will well, I find I will when give, I show I'll up? I'll give you a little bit of a history so yeah. can, you can see where we got to. Yeah. So in uh, 1986, a gentleman named Larry Harvey and his friend Jerry James, and actually today is Larry's 70th birthday, uh, the 11th of January. And Larry and uh, Jerry basically... Um, We're looking to just sort of do something expressive, do a little bit of a gathering with some friends and took some carpentry work, some wood that had been sitting out of a house, outside of a house that Jerry had been working on. And they built um, a figure. And the figure was really representative just of uh, the idea of their humanness and themselves. And they carried it down the beach. They invited a couple of friends. It was the summer solstice of June. And, uh, two fairly introverted, shy guys found that by burning a human figure on the beach, uh, people came and stood around, um, sort of, you know, brought musical instruments that they might've been, you know, walking along the beach with a drum, that kind of thing. And, uh, they both looked at each other and said, we're going to do this again. So they did it on the beach as a one night happening, if you will, uh, up until 1990, And in June of 1990, uh, 600, 500 people, something like that, showed up. Law enforcement said, this is too many people, this is dangerous. By then, the man had gone from being about 8 feet tall to 40 feet tall. Uh, He was well-designed, he wasn't just cobbled together. And the group had to take it apart, and they went and put it in storage. And uh, through the course of the summer, they thought about what their options were. And they had been approached by a group of sort of uh, playful a culture jamming uh, group, a loosely knit group called the Cacophony Society in San Francisco. And they did a lot of sort of underground parties and events and gatherings. And that group had stumbled upon uh, the event on the beach that they started calling the Burning Man. And they suggested, listen, we know how to do road trips. They called them zone trips. And, you know, we'll rent a truck. We'll put your man that hasn't burned in the back of the truck and we'll go out into the desert and we'll burn in the desert where nobody's going to mess with us. And at that point, they ended up with about eighty people. They chose Labor Day weekend. They uh, the pictures of that time period are exactly what you, you think it would be if a bunch of friends went out into the desert. You know, a bunch of trucks. Um, there's a rider truck with the you know that they opened up and they put this forty foot now uh, three quarters of a ton artwork together. Uh, it took everybody in the group to pull it upright, and they had a cocktail party at the base, and then they burned it. <laughs> and basically, from 1990 of Labor Day, that word spread, and people wanted to come and enjoy this sort of happening in the desert. Uh, pretty quickly, uh, it had to have infrastructure. And, but it grew organically. We had no professional event producers. The members uh, of the group uh, quickly became leaders uh, of volunteers. Nobody was paid. Uh, they really technically, I don't think anybody was really paid until 1994. And uh, it just uh, by the, you know, the, by the intelligence of the individuals, uh, they split up and divided up different responsibilities. And I came along in 1995. I attended, I had heard about it in a photography class. And there were 4,000 people when I attended. And then in 1996, I started dating Larry Harvey. And um, then through that relationship, became uh, very closely involved in it. And we now have, uh, we're on public land, uh, federal government land. Uh, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, comes under the Department of the Interior. And we get a perm- permission each year. We do go through quite a permit process. And the federal government receives about $3 million from our ticket sales Uh, so that they can monitor, bring law enforcement, uh, do environmental checks. And um, we also have law enforcement that comes. So we are a full-on city. We have radio stations. We have newspapers that are done by participants. And what we've done really is create a participatory city. So if you can imagine everything that you like about your city, we've actually encouraged and stimulated the membership and the citizens in this engagement to participate and take a role. We don't pay thousands of people like your typical music festival. We don't have stages. We don't have production companies putting up um, any of the infrastructure. We're doing it ourselves. And from that, people end up really engaged without having the normal things we have in our daily lives where you have a transaction, you're using money, you're getting your nails done, you're getting your gas Um, If you come into an environment where yourself and your creativity and who you are as a person are being brought to the surface, you will find you have more authentic connections. And the joy and creativity and the engagement that comes from that is found nowhere else on the planet.
0: Let's talk about some of the basic logistics, and then I want you to try to walk me through some of the experience. Because I think people are probably thinking, so why am I doing this? Why am I going out yeah. into the <laughs> desert um, for, for eight days uh, to watch something burn? Because there's more to it than that, although that is part of it. Uh, there are 1,600 porta-potties. There Or maybe there's more now. That's the article I read.
1: That's about the same.
0: Uh, yeah. What's really interesting is that there are no trash cans. So let's just talk about that basic human functioning of food, water, waste. um I, do I bring all my own food? Uh, yes. Do I cart out my own trash? Is, yes. there, is there food available?
1: Water available? <laughs> so um, this so the questions you're asking are actually the foundation of what we're doing. We we count on the participants participants to bring everything they need to survive. But we also look forward to people thinking of this as a community and that they would might bring a little bit more for their neighbors. So we don't sell any food. You do bring your, all your food. Large camps certainly do pop up as groups of friends get larger. They can be as large as 200 people. Um, some camps, actually, their purpose and their theme is to engage maybe a, a large cat chess board. But some of them actually give things away like like pork buns or falafel or waffles, it's kind of the exception to see a lot of food being given away, um but it is a small portion of the gifting economy that people engage in
0: and there's nothing so, for sale other than the ice and coffee right and thats by you but also by but also but also not by the other participants people aren't there's no marketplace no, correct none on site and at least there is some in it, advance, there's some outside of Reno, absolutely. I understand, and
1: yes. Yep. No. So there's, so you need obviously a tent and you're going to need infrastructure and you might even need a generator. And and if you have a large camp, since we don't sell water, your large camp is going to need fresh water. So we do have uh, service providers that you can contract with ahead of time to help you get the services for the larger camps. A smaller camp will typically just bring their own generator in, towed in behind their, their truck. And I'm going to
0: bring all my own water for the eight days? In you are
1: going to bring all your own water. You need to bring enough to cook with and to drink and to um, shower with. How am I going to shower? <laughs> with your own sun shower that, okay. that you've got at your local outdoor store. <laughs> okay, just, just checking. Oh, yes. All of that. So you're responsible then for the gray water too. You don't just let it um, sort of float onto the playa, as we call it, the the dry lake bed. It's interesting that we've seen innovation come out of these requirements. People get very creative about how to manage the gray water. You could put the gray water back into some sort of tank and then you're still going to have to haul it out. So we're seeing people um, using, obviously, skills, environmental skills and and teaching, but also innovating their own ideas to create uh, evaporation ponds so that we are not affecting the environment that we're, you're, we're utilizing or we're minimizing our effect.
0: Wait, can I, can we go into that a little deeper? Uh, If I'm taking my shower, you're saying I have to take that water home with me? Well, you have to dispose of it properly. Can't, I can't let it soak into the lake bed? No. Okay. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no. And we have uh, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management uh, with Burning Man. We collaborate together. We have a team of environmental monitors and the monitors are actually also teachers. So if we see that you've created this cute little shower and you've got your little shower pad um, and that you're, you know, your water is dripping onto the playa on a one to one basis, you probably won't see them going to go look for that. You know, the one camper and and his kid that are doing that. But if you have a camp of 10 or 15 people, you've set up a tank. Uh, you set up the shower. You've got shower curtains, and that water needs to go somewhere. Over the course of five, six, seven days, when you've got ten campers that are sharing this shower situation, the overflow, of the effluent, will need to go somewhere. And you get creative. You create usually a large pan. Yeah. It just I see where that's going. Pan. Yeah. Yep. Uh,
0: what about the porta potties? Who provides those, and what happens to them?
1: Great. The Porta Potties um, are a vendor, the uh, vendor, original vendor we sort of grew up with. Um, as Burning Man was growing, so was the town of Reno, um, and so we were able to. It's one of the limiting factors potentially for an event like ours: uh, law enforcement, space, roads, and toilets. There are over sixteen hundred toilets. Uh, they are spread out in the community. They're in banks of twenty to clean them more easily. They're cleaned three times a day. Uh, they're very clean, they're not your high-end uh, super-duper with a sink kind of thing, um, but this is the outback, so to speak.
0: Now, if you look at photographs from the air, and they're very beautiful, uh, of the community, it, they're, it's arrayed, it's laid out in a, a half-circle approximately, With there's roads, there's um, streets all, all through the camp, and when you zoom in close, you see that These are cars and tents and RVs and strange creations and all kinds of art, incredible things. How does that get established, one, the shape of it, and two, uh, where I get to go when I show up?
1: Great question. The shape of it was designed – the sort of birth of it goes back to around 1997. Uh, there's always been a sort of semicircular shape that goes back even further than that. But in 1997, we were on private land and we needed to work with the county and the county, along with a friend of one of the organizers, uh, took a look at city designs and also took a look at the requirements we were getting from the county and, uh, you know, came up with this gorgeous design that at the time was much smaller. The edges of the circle uh, were sort of down to the side and we use a clock to tell time uh, to uh, to take direction. We use time to take direction. So the far right-hand side of the city is, starts with 2 o'clock and it goes all the way to 10 o'clock. Um, originally, there was, it was around uh, uh, 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We were that small, and so we just sort of added to it. Um, the way in which you would find a spot is kind of interesting. So you if you are with a camp that wants to really engage and... Have an experience at Burning Man that is um, productive and is valuable to yourself and others, you might create something we call a theme camp and a theme camp has a deliberate purpose to engage with the community and it doesn 't have to do this twenty four seven and it has public facing a portion and it of course has lots of private space so you don 't have to you 're not really uh, creating a camp that the entire public has to engage in. But you and your campmates have an idea that you want to give as a gift to the community. Now, those camps, of course, in order to create their idea and their infrastructure and their frontage, will need more time and more space than your average, hey, I'm going to go to Burning Man and put up my tent. So they apply in April of each year, and the deadline is the 30th of April. And usually there's about 1,300 applicants, and close to that, usually there's maybe 100 that don't make the cut. And those applicants are read by a team of 18 volunteers and then they basically curate where the theme camps are placed along the outside edges, along the, what we call the Esplanade, which is facing out towards the, the, towards the desert and the man, and then a bit back into the living area. And uh, by late June, the camps find out uh, a little bit more about where they're going to be located. And at this point, a, uh, Little more than half the city is is being placed. So half of our population uh, is deliberately creating an environment to engage with others um, and going through this uh, process, coming in to build that portion. And then the other half of the city comes in um, on a Saturday night or Sunday as we're starting and just finds a spot. And sometimes you find a spot, you open up the map and you're like, hey, I like pink flamingos. There's a pink flamingo camp. And you might, you know, take your tent as close as you can to the pink flamingo camp so that you can all week, you know, hang out with the pink flamingo people.
0: But the uh, tickets sell out fairly quickly once they go on sale.
1: Correct. Right, so tick- that's a that's a ticketing is one of our more interesting aspects of our economy and our culture. Um, I've had conversations with uh, the, the president of Ticketmaster a number of years ago, and he said, you know our biggest concern in the world is making sure that uh, that what we're doing uh, as ticket purveyors and event producers is is reducing the, the scalping and I started to tell him about our system and he said, yeah, you guys are so complicated. I'm sure you don't have a lot of scalping. We have a lot of layers to our ticketing and they sell out partly because we do reserve a portion of the tickets for these camps that we just spoke about. Because in order for a camp of 50 to 100 people to come and engage at that level, they need to have the number of people to actually do that. And if you use a ticketing system to curate all of that activity, the people won't get the tickets. And it did happen to us one year. We were, it was a mess. We learned from that one. So we put aside 25 to 30,000 tickets and they're sold into that, uh, you know, ecosystem, into that portion of the culture. So we do sell out of the tickets that are publicly available But if you are committed to engage and you are a volunteer or you're involved in a camp or even in a large art project, we make sure that if you need to come and you are artistic and creative and you're ready to bring something to this city, you'll find a way to get a ticket.
0: I want to come back to that. but And we're going to talk in a minute for those of you listening who still don't have any real idea what this is. like. Why am I getting there early? Uh, uh, and what does engaging mean? But we'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I have a really basic logistical question. So let's say I don't have a ticket, and it's a day before it starts. I think, oh, I'm just going to show up. What happens? Not going to happen. Yeah, you know, what happens? <laughs> You're in the middle of nowhere. There doesn't appear from the pictures that there's anything. There's no. I don't see a barbed wire fence. So how do I – How do I, what keeps me from people like me, like I'm so eager, but uh, I could could be, I really love the idea of it. We're going to talk more about why, but uh, what keeps someone just from crashing?
1: Well, so that's evolved over time. How we manage that, it definitely evolved over time. Up until 2011, you actually could drive up to the gate and buy a ticket but we really couldn't function that way. We couldn't function that way economically. Uh, In 1997, 50% of the people bought their ticket at, at the gate and we couldn't build the city under those conditions. But at this point we have a population cap. So we have to know exactly how many people we're going to be allowing into the city. So if you drove from Reno, it would take you about two hours along a two lane road. You would go through two small communities, one of them Native American. So if you got out to Burning Man and you didn't have a ticket, you first of all have missed two large traffic signs that tell you you need to have a ticket. <laughs> you've also just, you've got a lot of nerve and you've come to the gate to find that you're probably one of maybe two or three people. I don't think we have more than oh, 25 or 30 people each year that are that you know foolish and they do come, and often they can get a ticket from someone else that's selling them, but they might wait a day or two. And we don't sell a ticket to anybody that's standing there waiting to try and get a ticket. But there's actually a fence there. So, our fence is one of our favorite stories. Uh, anybody in the East Coast is familiar with the orange trash fence for windblown dunes. I myself lived in Boston and remember them along the roadside to keep the dunes from floating onto the road. Now, that orange fence, the fencing, the-, the, the It's like uh, a webbing. The webbing, yes, exactly. That's about 36 inches wide, which means we're creating a fence of that's 36, maybe 40 inches tall. We're putting in tea stakes, just like ranch stakes, and we're mapping this fence around the entire city with two openings, three openings, one for law enforcement, one for the airport, and one for the participants, And it's a nine-mile fence that's barely waist high. Hmm. And it works because we're in the middle of nowhere, so you can see anything (laughs) approaching. So our gate and perimeter staff, who work with night vision goggles and marine radar like the boats use to detect anything approaching, and of course, there's always somebody every year that drops someone off at the roadway, and they start hiking the mile and a half into the fence, and we catch them. We have a hundred percent capture rate, so to speak. You're the, the anti Alcatraz of Nevada. No it's one's, no funny. one's ever broken in. Do you get any wildlife? It's quite a game, though. You know, you, you're, people are inspired by technology. They're inspired by their own ingenuity. Sure. You know, and both on both sides, and these are volunteers that are on the perimeter. You know, that are burners themselves, and they're like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find that guy, and they usually do. Um, you know, there's very, very, very few stories. I've never read one in the media of somebody that actually says, "Hey, I, I write, write my blog post. I got through." It just doesn't happen. Do you have any wildlife? I mean, of the four legged variety.
0: Do you have any anything wander through the camp that's that's animal like? Very,
1: yeah, very <laughs> little. Um, the the folks that do setup told me last year that there was a fox that found them out in the middle. So that fox uh, would have traveled a couple of miles and was probably attracted by their lights uh, in the evening as they were doing the survey. That's a very, very first group in early August. Other than that, we mostly see things like praying mantises and uh, odd insects. Uh, there's been a bird one time that flew into one of our trailers. It was a strange little bird that had obviously gone off course, and uh, we captured it and took it off the playa and, and released it near some uh, vegetation. It's a pretty surreal
0: uh, landscape for sure, and the, the creativity of the people who are there for eight days adds to that uh, little bit, Absolutely. to that,
1: that surreality. Right, it's a blank canvas, and that, that, that actually enhances your opportunity for your imagination. Everything, if everything... That's that you see in front of you. If you see either nature or you see these creative endeavors, it really puts you in this uh, place of, "Gosh, you know, what am I doing? And how can I play? And and what can I be? And and what can I do? And 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 also, if you're a sort of introverted and you think you don't really, I don't know, uh, it, it, you you turn your head up and you look at the beauty, you look at the art, and you're much more likely to to work through that shyness and say hello to someone because there's, that's the opportunity that you're given. So it's kind of a
0: giant party for 75,000 people uh, where you have to bring your own beer and everything else. Your own BYOB, bring your own bread, bring your own beer. But if you spend a day, uh, a, there's no such thing as a typical day, but a typical day is going to, what am I going to experience when I from roughly dawn to dusk on a, on any one day that would make that makes this exhilarating. And it appears to be exhilarating for a lot of people. It's not just a giant campground. It's much more than that. So
1: it's not just a giant campground. And in fact, um, certainly some people call it a giant party. I came to realize a number of years ago when I decided I doing any kind of drinking at Burning Man was going to inhibit my leadership responsibilities. I came to realize that it was really a celebration of creativity. And so you're. So explain. uh, Well, the if you can imagine some of the joy that we've had when we're sitting, even as adults, making a collage or making a handmade card or even working with others to create a family celebration, there's so much joy in the opportunity to bring people together or to create something for someone else. And that the entire intention of this city is to do that. So more than just a party it is really a celebration of that opportunity and that's what brings people out of themselves they look around they realize that gosh i could just sit here and drink my beer and sit on my lawn chair and watch people go by and you know maybe hand out you know lifesavers <laughs> but i could also get up and i could go help dig a trench for that artist that needs it i can go um, into the center of camp and volunteer to help sling coffee And I might feel like I'm bigger than something than myself. And so your typical day really is sort of along those lines. You might be in a theme camp, at which point you probably have some responsibilities to the camp. You might be helping to cook. You might be helping to do the interactive engagement for the public. Uh, You might have your day off to go ride your bike around and go visit other camps. That's pretty much the same for anybody. Um, I certainly run a camp. Uh, I'm not active in the running of the city uh, of Burning Man itself. I am responsible for the leadership that does that. But with my camp, I do the same thing. I wake up, I have some breakfast, I look at the weather, because that's part of my job. If it's hot, we put on different outfits. It can be as hot as 104 degrees. Uh, It can be as chilly as about 40 at night. And so you, you know, you, you set up your outfit for whether you're working or whether you're just going to go roam around and then you probably find something to do. Like you're, it's really rare at Burning Man that you are doing nothing because the entire experience is for you to do something or to engage with other people that are doing something. It's uh, it's an interactive art experience.
0: So for the people who haven't looked at the photographs, uh, you know, there are there are, people are dressed in very unusual ways, very creative ways, very extraordinary ways, and there's all these installations of art that are just extraordinary. And I'm happy to notice, as I Googled around preparing for this interview, that some of the art from Burning Man is coming to Washington D.C. to the Renwick, which is one of my favorite museums, uh, on March 30th. So uh, those of us on the East Coast can inhabit and. These are not things just to look at. Sometimes they're things to climb on. <laughs> they're things to interact with and change their shape, their color, their size, their whatever. It's an amazing uh, amount of creativity that that amazing number of creative people are drawn to it.
1: The Renwick is going to be a fabulous show. That They have uh, picked some of the best artists that have ever been to Burning Man. They've commissioned some art pieces, and it'll be a great example of the story of the history and then there will be some large interactive art. And, uh, you know, you said it. It's, the art is spectacular. That's part of what's inspirational. And having been somebody that's been going for 22 years, obviously, like, not even obviously, it's, this, this is a self-perpetuating environment. So 22 years ago, when people say to me, oh, it's, it's different, well, of course it's different. Actually, it's bigger, it's more engaging, the art is more complicated. Yeah. Because people come one year and they're like, wait, I can do that. And they go home and they email their friends and then they've got five friends that come over into the backyard and they start prototyping something in September. They've just left Burning Man. And by January, they might have an idea and they apply to the organization for an art grant. When we grant $1.2 million for art projects. And those grants are anywhere between $500 to $50,000. And that's intended to help stimulate the process and the projects. And through that, the artists continue to have more ambitious ideas over the years. And so more fantastic art comes to Burning Man. And one of my favorite types of art that actually anybody that lives in Houston, Texas has seen plenty of our art cars and art cars yeah. are basically really very unique moving vehicles and you cannot drive your car at Burning Man. You come, you park your car, you set up your, your campsite and you don't move your car until you're ready to go home except for art cars and art cars, just like theme camps, apply, they, they send in designs, they tell the organization what their size is going to be, how many people are going to be on it, what their safety procedures are, and you get anything from little bunny slippers that are modified golf carts with two people on them, to large dragons that will hold 150 people and a sound system, and a will roam around the playa at night, and you see this golden glowing dragon, and your mind is absolutely blown, so um, that, that art, that art, that type of art for me is the one that I really hope that we, you know, America is just so big and broad and we, it's so expansive and it's the kind of art that is, it, because it's mobile and it can come into a city or town and people can sort of see this, these beautiful creatures and some of them are, look like animals and some of them look like, you know, modified buildings and uh, little kids can climb on them and there's this big... Uh, um, art car gathering uh, usually in May or April in Houston, Texas. Um, and many of those vehicles um, also come to Burning Man. And so I'm, I'm hoping we have some of those um, outside the Renwick. I'm really looking forward to that show.
0: Some of them look a little bit like something out of Mad Max. Um, there's a lot That's
1: of... <laughs> a the first cars did and many of them still do now. But that was, you know, the evolution of this was certainly very raw. And in the, in the early to mid nineties, it really was, you know, you were an artist, you were in the underground in San Francisco, you drove the six and a half, uh, seven hours to get out there. And, uh, you were bringing the sort of underground vibe that was coming out of San Francisco in the late eighties. And just- now it, these, these vehicles, there's one, there's a huge one that comes from Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, they're building them overseas, putting them on. There's one, uh, that came from Melbourne, Australia this year, like. they're coming from all over the planet to bring their art to engage at Burning Man.
0: So as an economist, I'm interested in things that emerge without planning. And of course, some of this is planned. You know, you apply in advance for these theme camps. You apply in advance to get a grant for your art, perhaps. And some people, I know, crowdsource their art. They don't rely on your grant, uh, on a grant. But still, there's some attempt on your part to make things happen of a certain kind. There must be a lot of things that happen that aren't part of your plan. One of those, I I assume, is music. I assume there's impromptu music either on a regular basis or a semi-regular basis. And I assume there's no formal, unlike, say, Disney World. This is kind of like a (laughs) – I I hope this isn't insulting to you, Marianne, but it's it's a little bit like Disney World for um, the counterculture and creative people. At uh, Disney World, it'll say, uh, such and such ride starts at this time. You can see uh, this thing plays every 25 minutes, this show. Uh, I assume there are some kind of things that happen like that. There's There are musicians that come and play every night. There are musicians that play once. And yet most of that's going to spread through word of mouth, I assume. Or is there an impromptu schedule that emerges that people circulate? What happens? Anything like
1: that going on? Or maps? Sure. Are there maps? Yep. Absolutely, all of the above. Uh, Music is definitely part of the characteristic for Burning Man. Um, Now there's uh, plenty of dance music, since that's uh, very powerful in the global culture. And those camps typically also have applied so that they can have a location for their stage and they can have a location for their sound system. But they are themselves doing the work to bring their friends in or DJs that they know, uh, then the next kind of music is certainly the the, there's jazz music. There's a whole camp called the French Quarter. Uh, there's a couple of other groups, camps that uh, there's one called Reverbia. They bring sort of world music in, and that's all on their own dime. They're doing all of the recruitment. Uh, they're finding friends that want to play. They're helping make sure that, you know, the, the folks that come, um, you know, there's no hotel nearby. So if you're going to come and play music at Burning Man, you're going to be coming out and you're in a tent or you're in an RV. And there's a, you know, there's a limited number of RVs. It's not like you can bring an RV in on Tuesday and drive it back out on Thursday. You technically can, but it's such a, it's such an endeavor to get there with the infrastructure. You're likely to actually, you know, be camping or crashing in someone else's RV if you're only going to come out for a night or two. So many of the musicians will come make a commitment to stay for a number of days. My favorite kind of music for sure is the pop-up music. Uh, there's a guy in my camp that plays saxophone and boy, is it a really nice thing to hear him climb up onto the, the top of the, one of the viewing decks we have near our camp and listen to him play the music as the sun sets. Um, there's just all sorts of art cars. They are mobile music and each one of those has their own personality because some of them have DJs on them. Some of them just have, you know, somebody's favorite playlist Um, there's a marching band and that's a loosely knit group of people that, you know, (laughs) they put something out there and they say, if you play a tuba or you play the snare drum and boy, they do their thing. They have, they, there's a, there is a calendar of events. Uh, We, people have to submit their event, I think by the middle of July, because then we put it into a print production of, uh, uh, it's called the what, where, when. And, uh, then more events still come through and those are just left on the internet. And then there's a map uh, that was a beautiful map that's done. And that's handed out with the what, where, when, when you arrive at the gate. So a great example is if you uh, like to play harmonica, you would come to Burning Man and you'd open up the thing, uh, the what, where, when, and you'd probably say to yourself, gee, I'm looking for the music stuff. And you it would take a while to read through all the things But you might find the Dixieland band group that says, we play every day at two o'clock at this camp. Come join us. And you would take your harmonica and you'd go say hi to people and they would just be sitting there jamming and you would join them. And that is the typical, that's the best and most typical way to enjoy music is bring what you have and find the type of music that you want to play and be part of and find others that do the same thing and join them. That whole point, that's the whole point. Come and do it.
0: You might want to give people a scope of the size of the whole city because it it's it's large because you're thinking, well, there's this band here and this band there, aren't they gonna be crowding each other out? But it's it's kinda big. So how it's it's a it's a piece of a circle. What's the diameter of that circle? It's, roughly? It's two
1: miles ac- well, we're two miles across from uh, one tip of the fence to the other. Which doesn't seem like much, but when you're That's mostly walking way. or yes. on your bicycle and it's hot, it's a long way. Yeah, I yeah.
0: I, I didn't hear from you. If if I just sh- if I bought my ticket and I show up and I'm not one of the camps, do I get assigned a, a, a space no. or do I just go find you one?
1: Get, you go just find a, okay. you find a space.
0: Do yeah. people crowd? Is there some crowding in the beginning for people rushing to get one of the spaces they want?
1: Well, so on uh, the gates open Sunday morning at twelve oh one. And there usually is a line. There's a bit of a backup through Sunday. So it could take you four hours to get through the gate, which is I mean, sometimes it's been six or eight, but we like to make sure it's no worse than four. So that the only crowding you get is that moment of that gate opening. But at that point, there are already 30,000 people yeah, that have done the sure. setup. So you're not in line with 70,000 people. So one of my favorite. Everybody spreads out. You know, it's not like you're, there's two people elbow to elbow getting that one little corner spot. A a lot of people have already thought about where they might want to be. If their friends got there early, uh, they might have texted them and say, hey, we're in this camp and there's room for you to, you know, put down your tent. Um, We don't, the internet doesn't really work that well. So once we open, uh, you know, you're on your own. You come and you might use a billboard system uh, to try and find your friends. Hopefully, though, you've made a plan ahead of time. Like you might say, "I'm going to be at eight thirty and G," and you come to eight thirty and G. There's already somebody there, but your friends have actually they've scooted down a little bit and they're at eight forty five and G. But have, it's kind of it's kind of pandemonium in that regard. There's a little. There's definitely people driving around trying to find their friends. But that's part of the fun.
0: But you've laid out some roads at that point, or no? Yes, absolutely. There's quadrants yeah, there's city, and marked up yep. spaces and
1: yep all the road system is the first thing we lay out. We put a, the fence uh, border goes in and the city is the, the surveying is done for the streets and there's a block system. It's uh, it is alpha um, going outward. Uh, The first one is the Esplanade. It's always called the Esplanade. And then the next street, the curb street is a, and I think it goes out to L and then all of the angular streets are time. So when you enter into the city, you're actually entering at six o'clock and L, and then you go to the left or the right on L, and you might be then, you know, you you find 730 and you drive up until you're at 730 and D. It's very, very awesome. logical. Yeah, uh, we tried one year to change the uh, system. We thought it was sort of clever on our part. And the participants actually started changing the street signs back to the time. We were using a sort of compass-like system, and literally they made... Uh, uh, paper signs and taped and rubber banded them and covered them up because people preferred the 7.30, the 8.30, the 8 o'clock, the 9 o'clock system. So we went back to that.
0: I wanted to ask you about other examples of that. One of my favorite examples of um, emergent order is that sometimes there'll be a sidewalk on a college campus and it's not in a convenient place. Not that many people use it. Instead, they've cut across the lawn. and Enough people cut across the lawn, they eventually create their own sidewalk, and then the university often will pave that because they realize that's where people like to walk. And that's, it just sort of emerges without any one person designing it. Have th- do things like that happen that you can remember where you had an idea of what might happen or, and then something like you just told me happened to reverse it, or where you saw that something emerged from the behavior of the participants and you realize, well, let's just, let's just make this more formal and and easier to to, to do.
1: Yeah, a couple of things in different different sorts of ways. Uh, Definitely the walking paths. We actually call those goat paths. So a camp might be uh, in the middle of a block, but the way that they use their internal walking system uh, ends up creating a little zigzag path. And suddenly they'll find members of the public using their goat path. And you can see them on aerial uh, a, on aerial photographs, how these camps, different camps have like different uh, zigzag paths. And then we've actually done the same thing back in our staff camps. We just started formalizing them and we call them goat paths. And then we make sure that they're there so that we can sort of run around and get to each other quickly instead of using our road system. And those happened absolutely naturally. One of the ones that I think has uh, been the most touching and in the, in the example that we talk about a lot uh, in the community as a cultural uh, meme that happened. We, the man, used to burn on Sunday night before Memorial Day Monday, and we moved it to Saturday night a number of years ago. You mean over Labor 10 Day. Years. Labor yes. Day? Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I say yeah. Memorial Day? Yeah, you did. I'm, <laughs> definitely, I did. Definitely. Definitely mean Labor Day. Yeah. Uh, on Monday before Labor Day, and uh, we discovered that by moving the man to Saturday, we would enhance uh, the outbound traffic. Um, challenge. So we moved the man to Saturday, and in place on Sunday we uh, discovered this gentleman that was building these beautiful temples, and asked him if he would build one uh, for a for Sunday, and we would burn it on Sunday. And it, this is David Best, and there's a number of people that have been doing temples over the years, but he was the first one that we asked and had on a Sunday. And what we noticed. that happened all by itself without any guidance from the organization was the natural revelry of the man burning on Saturday night, the hooping and hollering, the music of the art cars, the, the fanfare, the bottles of champagne, and the laughter stopped on Sunday night when the temple burned. The art cars turned off their music and everybody sat in solemn silence as they lit the temple. And sometimes a, you know, you've seen the wave happen at a stadium. Well, a wave of, ah, will go around or, ooh, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, it's not even like a, an, ah, uh, ooh, but it's more like a, a release of, of, of joy. And it circles around the participants and there's no other sound This happened all on its own to the point that one year a group played a song that offended people. Mm -hmm. And we had to respond publicly by saying, well, actually that tradition of being silent has happened on its own. But we do want to reinforce that that is the way we prefer for things to be. And then the group that made the music happen explain what had happened and why Um, so there was a whole dialogue on the internet but for the most part now we have created the framework and let people know that there's sanctity to that burn
0: yeah it's very it's it's actually very moving to me Um, having been on uh, meditation retreats where on the last day there's an incredible there's just a high level of emotion because you've made connections with people and feel you've Understood yourself better, and I'm sure some of that is happening in in uh, at Burning Man, and that that last day has a solemnity to it and a joy. It's 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 a mixture. I'm curious what how you feel about the destruction of that temple, right? So it's a it's a really interesting idea, the idea of creating something beautiful and then destroying it because it's something like life, right? We all understand yeah. that that there's a a cycle to life and nothing lasts. Um, does anybody wax poetic about that or do you just kind of set it on fire and see what happens? Oh,
1: well, well, a lot of it, it's very um, it's very much about renewal for most people. Uh, when David did the first temple, he told a story about a friend that had helped build it and then had passed away um, via a motorcycle accident right before they, they came to Burning Man. And so he continued to talk about the story of of lost loved ones. Hmm. And that's sort of one of the themes that people have attached to the temple, Uh, whether it's from suicide or cancer or natural causes, that there isn't a place where we really honor that um, our losses in a public way. So the temple at Burning Man is known for a place that you could bring uh, stories, posters, ashes, memorabilia. You can write on it. You can write on the wood, and so people will bring a Sharpie, and they'll write a story, they'll write loved messages. So when we sit there preparing for it to burn, the, you know, the intention of how it exists for everybody at that moment, looking at it, is, um, has been, it's been a gift of a story, of, of a loss, and even if you haven't put something in there yourself that year, you know what others are thinking about. And it really, I think that's the silence is part of the contemplation of, you know, love and renewal and release. There has not been uh, a, any really significant discussion about it being about destruction. There's been a lot of discussion about uh, the act of renewal.
0: What proportion of the camp is there on that Sunday at that spot at the, where the temple's uh, burning?
1: That's a really great question. My guess is it's around fifty thousand people, maybe a bit less. It could be it I don't think it's less than half. A lot of people leave there's a two there's there's three exodus patterns, um, which are good to know if one goes to Burning Man because the question is how do I get out of here without, you know, <laughs> making it like a crowded theater and uh, you know, get my get my flight home or, you know, get home in time to put the kids back into school on, on Tuesday morning. And It's a, after the man burns, there's an exodus, which is usually 10 PM to 2 AM on Saturday into Sunday. And after the temple burns and the temple used to burn around nine o'clock at night, it now burns at dusk. And for us out there, dusk is around 745. So then from 8 PM to around midnight on Sunday night, there's quite an exodus. And then it really, it, it slows down in the wee hours, uh, and it picks back up again Monday morning. Certainly people that only have to drive, you know, six or eight hours, uh, they do leave on Monday. But anybody that has a flight or has a longer drive, uh, they tend to leave on Sunday.
0: How long does the Burning Temple last, that experience, that Those moments.
1: It it ranges on how complex the temple is and how big the temple is. Um, I've seen it as short as 15 minutes, but it's typically 25 to 35 minutes now.
0: Well, we're a little late getting to the 10 principles. There are 10 principles that you could use to guide your uh, oversight of this experience. I'd like you to just list them to start with, and we'll take a few of them maybe and go a little deeper. And I have the list here if you don't know them by heart or don't have them in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) unless you've changed (laughs) unless you've changed the list
1: (laughs) Uh, no we haven't changed the list it's kind of funny I have to speak often uh, about Burning Man and the list of the 10 principles I usually know about 8 of them by hand by heart uh, but I do have them in front of me the 10 principles are radical inclusion gifting decommodification Radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, leaving no trace, participation, and immediacy.
0: So let's start with gifting, which is appropriate for an economist. So one of the things, if if I didn't know anything about Burning Man, I'd assume there'd be all kinds of uh, ways to acquire things I forgot to bring by buying them. I'd assume that you know if I forgot. It's a horrible thought. For some reason, I forgot water. I forgot even small things, toothpaste, whatever it is, that there'd be a, a way to acquire them. That's the way markets work. And when I say markets work, I hate that phrase in some dimension. What I mean is that's the way human beings work. You know, if you, go to a, if you go to a baseball, a football game, and it's raining, you don't really have to bring an umbrella. There will be umbrellas for sale on the streets outside that football game. Uh, there will be peanuts for sale outside that football game. You may have trouble getting them in. You may have to pay a premium. Sometimes there's a lot of competition that brings the price down. Sometimes there's not so much, and they can t- charge you a lot. Sometimes they've limited how, who can sell, and so the price is high. But human ingenuity tends to seek out opportunity to interact with people commercially. But you don't allow that. Uh, so by gifting, it means it's not just – is there barter or is it totally gift?
1: We get the gifting barter question quite frequently. It's easily misunderstood that it's barter. We feel that barter is a transaction, and the goal is is. to not actually have transactions. (laughs) So gifting does not contemplate anything in return. And it could be a gift of yourself. It could be volunteering. It could be a gift of your music, playing your music. It could be a gift of maybe you've made some handmade necklaces, and you're riding your bike, and you find this beautiful art piece and there's the artist sitting there putting the last finishing touches on it and you, you hop off and you grab one of the necklaces and you put them around his neck or her neck and say thank you. Um, the gifting is a wide range. It includes um, food, it, it includes the art itself, it includes the, the theme camps. So we're, we're all about um, what it is you bring to it and how you give of yourself and um, it's the gifting economy. Is it against the rules to charge for something? And how
0: do you enforce that? Is it just sort of self-enforced by the participants that everyone understands that it's you're not allowed to sell stuff or is it or is there any enforcement?
1: It is definitely against the rules to sell anything and we if yes, we have our own ways of finding that out. Usually the participants actually come and tattle on each other. <laughs> Um, uh, we don't have a large enforcement uh, process. So, yeah. Right, exactly. We, d- we depend on others. Um, and and, uh, and it used to happen more in the early years, certainly in the early 2000s, when, frankly, when the dot-com uh, concept was coming to life, one of the things we would see, which is a little related to gifting and a little related to decommodification, is we would see camps have uh, logos from their uh, yeah. startup in yeah. front of their camp, or they'd be giving away flyers. See, we don't even want to see people uh, handing out flyers for free things back in San Francisco or in New York, um, and we really don't want to see people handing out business cards. We want um, most of that to be uh, to, to not be done. Uh, it's all—it's all about your immediate experience and the way that you engage with other people. And deep commodification goes with gifting; they work so, hand in hand.
0: So, and you argue that uh, where well, I think I read it or heard it, transactions distance people from each other.
1: Absolutely. Right. We're looking for the, the one-to-one uh, experience of engaging with other people. So as an economist,
0: you know, it's a tough one for me, uh, not because I believe in money, which I don't per se. I don't think there's anything uh, good or bad about money. Uh, but there's a long tradition in economics, going back to Adam Smith, that that when I sell you something, I have to know something about you. I have to actually put myself in your shoes to figure out what you might need or what you might you what you might want. And... That commercial life, our day-to-day existence, has some human face to it, precisely because we trade stuff. Um, now, giving is very beautiful, and of course, a family has giving. Uh, usually, almost always, there are families probably that sell, that rent their rooms out to their kids, and and uh, auction off the, the last cookie. But most of us run our families through gifting uh, exclusively. We might have an allowance. We might have some certain chores that we might compensate our kids for. We never did in our family. Our kids actually never got an allowance and never got money for chores. Um, and the commercial life that we lead as we grow up out of our families is a little bit jarring, as Hayek's pointed out, that it's a certain asymmetry between the world we live in, the small communities of our family or, or neighbors, and the larger Decentralized society that that we that we live in out, outside of Burning Man, but in Burning Man you want to have eight days of um, of a different type of human interaction, and you also I think want to have that expand ideally beyond Burning Man's borders. Is that true?
1: Yes. One of the things that also happened naturally on its own was that this experience of not having transactions and having creativity and wanting to connect with others because it becomes natural that naturally took itself outside of the Blackrock City environment so it became a, a cultural experience that could that what people were seeking beyond Blackrock City and the first that we really saw that was in 1997 when uh, we were a, in some challenges with the local county and we were in debt uh, temporarily and we appealed to the participants to assist us and we weren't a nonprofit at the time. And from that became uh, an outpouring of support from places like Austin, Texas, Seattle, Canada, New York. And we had not uh, at all created any kind of infrastructure. It was the beginning of the internet. It was the beginning of email. And we did not have anything other than a mailing system to mail out newsletters. And when the people reached out to us, we gave them an email address so that they could find others in their area, austin at com, new york at dot com. And we allowed and encouraged them to find others that had maybe been to Burning Man and wanted to, at not just at the time, reconnect with the organization to help us, but also to, to connect with each other, to explore what it would be like to find others that had had the same experience. And from that, people wanted to replicate the experience. So we found them um, wanting to do gatherings, certainly. But we, over the years, found them wanting to do civic work. And that's the most rewarding opening uh, to Burning Man, that really uh, a person does not have to want to go to a party, does not have to want to go to an overnight event to really engage with Burning Man principles. And that's really the area, the frontier, that we are, with our nonprofit, spending the vast majority of our time. Uh, People are shocked that we have 100 employees and it's a 40, $40 million endeavor to do Burning Man. But um, much of the year-round work now is spent um, encouraging and supporting and stimulating and teaching and educating and learning with those that are out in the world now that have come to Burning Man, that have created communities. Uh, There is an event in South Africa that has 12,000 people that's called Africa Burn, and they've built that event up over 10 years Uh, There is a civic engagement type arm called Burners Without Borders, Hmm. and that came out of Hurricane uh, Katrina in Mississippi, Louisiana in 2005. And that group now is a loosely knit group of individuals that at any point can say, hey, I want to help. So when Texas was flooded this um, past fall, they organically came together and began to help each other in ways that look like disaster relief, but are really probably more like civic work. Um, helping others uh, do whatever needs to get done, not just sort of cleaning up a mess. Um, some We've done some work in Haiti, in Japan, uh, in, in Peru, and that's coming directly from the participants themselves. We gave them framework, and now they became part of the nonprofit so that they can continue doing that work out in the world. So the most exciting part of what is Burning Man is what we're just touching on, which is that Burning Man now can be perceived and experienced through uh, art in a city or a town, engaging art, playful art. There's a big piece that just got put in San Jose, California that people can uh, move around in and make sound in and the lights go off. And um, there'll be uh, interactive art certainly like that at the Smithsonian, the Renwick. And we, and, and I just spoke about art cars earlier and Burners Without Borders. The most exciting part of what is Burning Man is that you, you don't need to attend an eight-day event in the Nevada desert to have an experience that makes you feel connected to other people, uh, that makes you want to, uh, to be kind to others, uh, to feel kindness and generosity and creativity and to help others. And the 10 principles are that framework. Um, a lot of people will read them and say, well, I I can see part of my religion in here. I can see part of my upbringing in school or family. Uh, The 10 principles are sort of common sense framework for people to imagine how to, to be civil to each other and be kind to each other and be good citizens.
0: Yeah. I wanted to react along those lines. And I want to mention one of the principles we didn't talk about explicitly, which is immediacy. And I think in today's world with, uh, With screens potentially dominating, certainly the lives of our children, and then the lives of the adults they become, and some of us as adults already, Uh, we really want that human connection. And um, you know, my my religious community—I'm I'm I'm an Orthodox Jew. Every time we had a child, uh, people brought us food for two weeks. The idea of giving paying them for it would have been insulting. And we, in turn, of course, provided food to many, many uh parents with newborns if someone needs a ride in a hospital situation. all those things are done as gifts always no one no one charges' typical as that I know of in most or all religious communities and in a very exhilarating moment, religiously, which may come or go infrequently but does sometimes happen, you know you have the privilege of sitting in silence with a group of people you care about and feeling something larger than yourself, whatever words you want to put around that about the divine or whatever. But it's it strikes me that when you were describing the the burning of the temple, or the burning man, right? The exhilaration and the joy and the the exuberance of the Saturday night and the Solemnity and sorrow and bittersweetness of and and joy at renewal of and saying goodbye and all of that that I sounds like happens on sunday mm-hmm. that's also what of course happens in many religious communities um and it's what part of what draws us to religion it's but as as religion becomes harder for many people to to accept for either reasons of rationality or cultural reasons, something like Burning man's an interesting. Alternative for people to feel that transcendence that and connection that religion I think provides at its best. It doesn't always work at its best, of course. Mm-hmm. And I I noticed that your theme this I think this past year or next year is radical ritual, and I'm curious if how how that played out or was it this year? Uh, radical ritual, yes, was 2017. And did that when you announced the theme? Does that just mean that the art might? Touch on that. What does what the theme Exactly.
1: Doing? It's more like the art might touch on that. Um, it is certainly a preference to the art uh, for the grants are, are given preferential treatment if, if it helps provoke the story of the theme. But much of the art is certainly isn't related to the theme. And the theme also gives people a storyline to just for contemplation. And in recent years, it's given a framework to the uh, the way the man base and the art around the man, uh, has a storyline. It's just giving, you know, it's, it's a lot about reflection. Uh, like you said, we had a environmental theme one year called the green man. Hmm. Um, we've done the floating world. We've done things that, uh, talk about space. Uh, this coming year, we're doing one called iRobot, which is, uh, certainly reflecting on, um, AI and, uh, some of the thoughts that are in society now about that.
0: So I, for what it's worth,
1: I see your enterprise, which
0: sprung out of two introverted people's desire to do something sure. different on a, a summer solstice mm-hmm. night, uh, as an example of the kind of thing that I think is going to be increasingly appealing. Uh, I see it in very trivial forms whenever I do a live econ talk. I know that people, they want to be, as much as we want to be immersed in our screens and our podcasts and our YouTube, we also still crave human connection. And this is an incredible example of it, it seems to me.
1: uh, That's what I'm finding, Russ. I'm flying all over the world. I was just in Australia. I'm going to Russia. Um, I'm asked to speak a lot to business groups. Uh, They're asking how they can engage and have better uh, employees that are better citizens. Like what can they do? And then how to look for better citizens and how to cultivate better citizens. And that's what we think we're doing. And it is global, and it absolutely is uh, something that people need right now. You're absolutely right. Let's close
0: or semi-close with the challenges you face. You had a tragedy this past year; somebody died. Um, I'm surprised that doesn't happen constantly. It's it's a seventy five thousand people. Things happen. Um, what are some of the challenges you've had to deal with, and um, and and you've that you're worried about going forward?
1: Oh, you know, there's different. There are many challenges. The loss of life is not uh, common, thankfully, and and the situation, the tragic uh, suicide last year, was extremely unfortunate and um, affected a lot of people that that witnessed it. Sure. It fortunately that is uh, that's not happened before in that form. Um, we do have uh, a, an ongoing relationship with the government. And the administrators over the Bureau of Land Management land and local government, it keeps us busy. I would um, guess some, so. That's crazy. <laughs> it's Sometimes
0: just crazy. it's more challenging I, <laughs> than others. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it, a lot of the work really is helping uh, translate what the intention and purpose is and also respect the responsibilities of the local and federal authorities that also are charged with um, you know, protecting citizens. And uh, it's a, it's an ongoing neg- negotiation. I would, it's a challenge at times, but I, I've honestly felt from the beginning, but that's part of what this is. We've never intended to be rogue um, and just sort of plant ourselves and be underground. Uh, we've always intended to create society and um, do that in doing that in the context of sometimes of Americans, America's rules and laws has very unique challenges Uh, and then it's interesting to then engage and have discussions with and meet people from other countries that are doing Burning Man and they face different challenges. Uh, The Burning Man folks that are doing their work in uh, South Korea or China um, or Thailand uh, have different challenges than in Germany and Italy and England and, and America um, and what, but the one that probably everybody has to navigate uh, together is what is the interpretation of what we're doing and what is the value to others. Where we do not mean to or intend to be secular and take us away from what the rest of the world is doing. We actually have found that we we represent all religions. We represent all politics. Uh, we have on in our database over 120 different countries that have come and attended Burning Man. Uh, All 50 states, usually at least 45 each year. Uh, We're a cross section of of global society. And, you know, the challenges are the same ones you would get as an individual. Uh, We have challenges with people, with neighbors when you're on site at Burning Man. Uh, We have challenges with the government. We have challenges with traffic. Um, I think our biggest challenge is uh, the growth. The idea that we um, know that there are limiting factors is uh, d- frustrating for us. And so we've looked at uh, making sure that we have uh, sort of a commuter environment, that we, uh, we started using buses just like the big uh, well-known festival Glastonbury. We just started using buses about four years ago, which Glastonbury has been using probably for 10 years to bring people in because the cars uh, you know they, there's only so many ways in and out which is just one um, so it's it's growth have and you that's thought that's about, the
0: number one challenge have you thought about having it twice a year instead of once we have thought about it I bet you twice have I year. don't think I'm really no. coming with a big breakthrough there
1: yeah we've thought about it we've thought about having it for two weekends which we technically do now we really open on a sunday and we close on a on a following monday so we've looked at having it two weeks long um, the cost and the energy that it would take to do that, the re- return on reward wasn't there for us. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we're really pushing it outward, and we're decentralizing it really.
0: So, so I'm going to ask you a slightly embarrassing question. I apologize in advance, but <clears throat> I assume you draw a salary. I do, which I which I'm all fine with, uh, of course. Yes. But but I also assume that you find this work rewarding and in more than just a, a financial way, that you believe in it in some deep way. Can I ask why? What's it mean to you?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I am asked this in different ways in different times. It's really changed my trajectory in life. I have—I was raised um, right-wing Republican Catholic Midwest and went to an all womens college English major, photography, and I thought I might be doing something in the arts, but I was raised by a businessman, so I also thought I would be a leader someday. And when I started experiencing Burning Man, I realized it was giving me a platform to really think about who I am and what I wanted to be. And not just in the creative sense, but the opening of being creative actually reminds you of this sort of playful childlike self that thought there, everything was possible. And I have stayed with it because it's helped me create change in my life and be a better person. And then I've stayed with it in the next phase when I was asked to be a, even a more important leader than I had been. And I felt that that was an honor worth uh, taking seriously. And now I navigate that because I do, the feedback I get from people that I meet and even people like yourself that haven't been and understand intrinsically that it's having an effect on people, that's what keeps me going is uh, the stories that the creative engagement and uh, connecting with other people, even like you said, though we're a bit, afraid of others and we hide behind our laptops and it's much easier to stay at home than go out uh that when people do find the opportunity to connect with other people that there's real joy and there's real love between humans and that burning man uh creates that opportunity to see that so that's why i continue doing this
0: i guess today has been marion goodell marion thanks for being part of econ talk
1: Thank you so much, Russ Roberts. This was a very enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening